Matthew 27, and we'll begin in verse 57. And read through Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So far from the reading of God's word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 16, stanzas 4 and 5. This is the psalm that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, referring back to the resurrection. Psalm 16, stanzas 4 and 5.
The text to which we'll be giving our special attention this morning is the same text that we've read, Matthew chapter 28. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, on this Easter Sunday morning, uh, it would be good for us to begin by remembering how foundational, how absolutely essential the resurrection of our Lord Jesus is for our Christian faith. Uh, That may be obvious to, to some of us. We think, of course, the resurrection is essential But the reality is we we often forget just how important this event in history is, how life-changing it is, how life-changing it was for those who first saw it uh, or or saw the risen Lord Jesus, and, and really how the whole of the Christian faith stands and rests upon this historical fact. Uh, To get a sense of this, just consider how the disciples themselves were utterly transformed when they saw, uh, when they discovered that the Lord Jesus was alive and no longer dead. We see this in the text uh, that we read. The chapter begins with this group of disciples and a number of women uh, who are grieving, who are confused who are disoriented, uh, who are profoundly disappointed, and who don't know what to think anymore. The disciples, uh, another gospel records, decide, you know what, let's just go fishing. They, They have nothing else left to do. That's where the chapter begins, and the chapter ends with the disciples standing on a high mountain with the risen Lord Jesus, receiving His command, go out into all the world, make disciples of all nations, and that's what they spend the rest of their lives doing until each and every one of them was killed for doing it. And they went right to the last moment, boldly confessing, the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead. Look at the transformation in these 11 disciples, plus, of course, the women and the others who, who saw the Lord Jesus. Or consider the words of the Apostle Paul, uh, himself having a very unique encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on his road to Damascus as he went to persecute Christians and there met on the road the Lord Jesus uh, who literally knocked him from his horse uh, and, and there he discovered the Lord Jesus is risen and is exactly who he said he was. Uh, consider Paul's words in, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Or again in verse 17 of that same chapter, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Or again, verse 19, If we have hoped in, in Christ in this life only, We are of all men most to be pitied. The Apostle Paul knew it. My faith, the Christian conviction, stands upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, The resurrection of Christ changes everything for those who believe. Either we are deluded fools, believing that a man rose from the dead who didn't, or we are right that the Lord Jesus really did rise. Uh, And if that's true then that means we also are, by God's grace, through Christ, heirs of eternal life. Uh, One or the other is true. We are either fools or we are heirs of eternal life. And it hangs upon the fact of the resurrection. 
And you can see this in the writing of the Apostle Peter as well. Uh, in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, he, he addresses the scattered, persecuted Christians of his day, uh, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope stands upon that conviction. Uh, He goes on to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is the resurrection that makes all the difference uh, for, for Christians. It is the resurrection of Christ that is the proof and the very foundation of our faith, the very reason for our hope and the assurance of that hope. And I trust that to some degree, that's, that's common sense for most of you. It, it's common sense even uh, for, for non-Christians. Uh, if the resurrection is true, it is obviously the, the most significant event in human history. Never before has death been conquered. Uh, never before has anyone gone through death and come out the other side victorious. And the implications are clear. If the Lord Jesus uh, declared himself, even before his death, to be the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, uh, who would die the sacrificial death to pay for the sins of the world, and then rise on the third day, as the Gospels record that Jesus often said, uh, if he said that and then did it, There's no question that that is the most significant uh, event in human history. Well, it's no surprise then that the the fact of the resurrection has received fierce opposition from many different quarters, from those who are unwilling or unable to believe or accept the claims of the Lord Jesus. And that's where we want to begin this morning. Uh, That's where Matthew spends quite a bit of time uh, considering the, the fact of the resurrection over against the claims of those who have challenged it. Uh, In fact, all of the Gospels uh, that record the account of the resurrection uh, end up dealing with these objections from different quarters. Uh, So John's Gospel, for example, spends a a chunk of its resurrection narrative uh, on Thomas, the, the disciple Thomas, and his objection that if I don't see him with my eyes and touch him with my hands, I will not believe. Uh, it's, a, it's a rejection that, that probably resonates with many of us in our culture uh, as well. We are uh, very much of a scientifically minded culture. We want to see things, touch things, observe things, and we have a hard time believing them otherwise. Uh, so John spends his time dealing with that objection. Uh, Luke uh, spends a lot of his resurrection narrative dealing with the objection from those who think that perhaps the disciples hallucinated or, or saw a ghost. Uh, in fact, Luke is honest about the fact that the disciples themselves, when they first encountered the Lord Jesus, they themselves thought they might have be seeing a ghost. And so Luke records in detail how, how Jesus invited the disciples to, to touch his hands. Uh, he ate a piece of fish Uh, in front of them to show them this is not what a ghost uh, does. And then Matthew, Matthew deals, because we've seen already on Friday, Matthew is the Jewish gospel. Matthew deals with the objection from the Jews. 
uh, which verses 11 to 15 record. Uh, those verses record how the, the Sanhedrin had a guard posted outside of the tomb, uh, and how the, the chief priests afterwards spread this false report that the disciples had stolen the body, which Matthew says this is a story that's still in circulation even to this present day. Uh, and, and to some extent, uh, this is probably the most common story that's still in circulation even uh, today, 2,000 years later. Uh, so if all of the gospel writers are all willing to deal with the objections that come to this historical fact, uh, we ought to do so as well. We should consider the objections. We should, as the gospels encourage us to do, we should weigh the evidence. Is it reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead without having seen Him with our eyes or touched Him with our hands? Or could it be that the disciples actually saw a ghost or hallucinated? Or could it be that the disciples actually stole the body and then made up the whole thing? Well, the Gospels seek to answer those questions, and we ought to as well. Uh, Now, to answer those questions... The one thing that we we have to recognize as a starting point uh, that all of these alternative explanations admit uh, is that one way or another, the tomb was empty. There was no body. Uh, Everyone accepts this point. The body was gone. Uh, The tomb was registered to a known individual, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. Uh, Everyone knew where the tomb was. It was officially registered, and everyone knew it was empty. Uh, If it wasn't, the Jews could have easily dispelled the entire story by, by just saying, come, look at the tomb. There's the body of Jesus. Look, he didn't rise from the dead. Uh, So everyone agrees the body is gone. It's not there in the tomb. Which leaves us with the question, what happened to the body? Now, uh, there's another additional fact that's important to remember uh, that, that also everyone recognizes as true is that All of the disciples, as well as the women, as well as a dozen or so other uh, people, uh, at least claim to have seen and spoken with and touched the the risen Lord Jesus. Uh, The disciples all testify they were there together with him on multiple occasions, uh, including on the day that he ascended into heaven. Uh, So, whether we believe that testimony or not, Either way, we we accept that that all of them at least claim to have seen it. Uh, In addition, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in that chapter, Paul makes a point of mentioning 500 other witnesses on top of the disciples and and the other women who he he points out are still alive. He, He writes to the Corinthians, you can go and ask them yourself. Uh, They're they're alive, they're among you. Uh, So, again, we're left with the the question, what happened? Uh, We have an empty tomb with with the body having disappeared and dozens, likely hundreds of people saying, we saw him, we touched him, we ate with him, we saw him go up into heaven. One more uh, factor that that we should consider, um, and that is the, the transformation of these disciples themselves. It's just a reality that... 
no matter where you stand on the resurrection, you have to deal with. Uh, the, the disciples went from these frightened, confused, bewildered people uh, and, and these grieving and brokenhearted women into men and women who not only say that they saw the Lord Jesus, but from that day forward boldly proclaimed him right to the day of their death. Uh, and, and then with them you have the explosion of the Christian church from a tiny group of followers to, to thousands upon thousands throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, so those are the facts. Uh, those are the, the realities you, you have to deal with if you're going to try and explain the resurrection away as the Jews did here in, in Matthew 28. Now let's consider their story then. This, the story that the disciples came and stole the body at night. Uh, now one not so small problem with this story is the question of how in the world did the disciples get around this guard of soldiers? Uh, these disciples are fishermen. These soldiers are trained Roman soldiers. Uh, they're an official guard that's been posted outside the tomb uh, because the Jewish leaders were well aware that Jesus had said he would rise again. And as they say to the soldiers or, or to Pilate, uh, they say, if, if the disciples steal the body, the last fraud is going to be worse than the first. So can we post a guard? Uh, now, there are some who, uh, in today's time, they, they look back 2,000 years after the fact, and they say, well, was there really a guard uh, posted? You know, the Romans didn't usually post guards around the bodies of, of people that had been crucified. Uh, well, no, they didn't. Most of those people didn't say they were going to rise on, on the third day either. Uh, in addition to that, this, this guard is probably the, what, what was known as the temple guard, or officially the Sanhedrin, uh, which were a Roman guard that worked in the service of the chief priests. Uh, so when the, the, uh, the chief priests spoke to Pilate, they asked for a guard, and Pilate doesn't say, I'll give you a guard. He says, you have a guard, and you can go ahead and post them there. Uh, so it's probably the, the temple guard who worked in the service of, of the chief priests. Uh, so the question is, how did the disciples uh, get around this guard? Uh, one other thing about uh, the uh, reason why we believe these, uh, this guard was really there is Matthew's dealing here with an objection uh, from the Jews. And the objection is not, the Jews are not saying after the fact, no, there was no guard. They're telling the story that's still in circulation that this guard fell asleep. Uh, they're admitting there was a guard. Uh, so Matthew is, is working here with a hostile witness, uh, what you would call, who, who, who still acknowledges there is a guard. So the question is, how did they get around it? Uh, there's not really an easy answer to that question. In addition to that, the even bigger question is why? Why? Why would the disciples uh, go around this guard, steal the body, and make up the story that the Lord Jesus had risen? Uh, the Gospels record in, in plain, honest truth, the disciples themselves didn't expect Jesus to rise. Uh, they were confused and disoriented, and the, and the only one thing they were sure of was that Jesus was dead and gone. That ship had sailed. They weren't waiting for Jesus to rise. In fact, they had nothing to gain from, from proclaiming that Jesus had risen. Uh, in the end, every one of them gave their lives 
for this testimony that Jesus had died. And that's after 5 or 10 or 20 or in John, the, the Apostle John's case, 60 years of serving the church faithfully, proclaiming faithfully that, that Jesus had risen and then he gave his life for that testimony. They had nothing to gain. Uh, the reality is you'd be hard-pressed to find one man willing to make up that kind of story and put his life on the line for it. Uh, to, to, to go and steal the body, then lie about it, then spread that story for the rest of his life, and then be killed uh, in gruesome ways for that story. Why? And you don't just have one. You have 11 disciples all united on that same story. Uh, you, you just can't get 11 people to agree on, on any conspiracy of that size. Uh, and that's not to mention the women and the dozens, or according to the Apostle Paul, hundreds of others who also say they saw the Lord Jesus. Uh, and, and amazingly, there's no dissenters. Not one of the 11 disciples ever retracted his story, ever towards the end of his life said, you know what, we made it up. Uh, Not one of them backed out, even under the immense pressure that they faced. Uh, This is is not like uh, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, uh, having claimed to receive a a private vision, uh, seeing these golden plates all by himself with no other witnesses. Uh, This is not like Muhammad, the the founder of Islam, claiming to have received divine revelation uh, from God all by himself. This is 11 people, fishermen, men with their own families to take care of and their own families to to protect, uh, with their own careers, with everything to lose and nothing to gain but a lifetime of opposition, persecution, exclusion, and ultimately death. Uh, You just can't manufacture that kind of conspiracy. It just doesn't uh, make sense. Uh, and then it makes, if, if that's true, it makes even less sense to say that these disciples went and actively stole the body. It's one thing to, to say that they, they all persuaded themselves of this story and, and then went on the rest of their life having believed a lie that they told themselves. But these people went, according to the Jews, and stole the body. Does that make sense? Do people do that uh, and then live the rest of their lives on that lie that all 11 of them know to be a lie? Uh, in addition to, to all of that, uh, if, if that's how they done it, if, that, that, if that's how they had done it, is this how they would have told the story? There's another uh, question that has to be asked. Uh, it's, it's not like the Gospels record that, yes, we the disciples, we knew Jesus was going to rise on the third day. So we were just sitting there watching the clock, uh, waiting for that third day. And what do you know? Jesus arose just like we expected. Uh, no, they're honest about their, all their own cowardice, their own failings, their own foolishness. They had no idea, and they were totally honest. Indeed, they even admit, even after we saw him, some of us thought he was a ghost. Uh, some of us still doubted until we touched him, until we, we, we ate with him, until we saw him go up into heaven. Uh, on top of that, uh, again, thinking about, is this how they would have told the story? You think about the first witnesses. They were women. 
Uh, in that culture, a woman's testimony was simply not valued. It was not worth much. Uh, women in that culture, uh, obviously irrationally, uh, were considered to be intellectually inferior uh, and easily deceived. Uh, so the, the, to use the testimony of, of women uh, would have been the worst way to make up this story, to say, yeah, the women saw it first. Everyone would have said, well, that makes sense now. Uh, that, that's not how you would make up a story. Uh, so, though there's, you can always come up with additional arguments, it comes down to the question, what's reasonable? What's reasonable to believe? Uh, that the disciples, the women, and all the others were part of this grand conspiracy, stole the body, made up this story, uh, though they had nothing to gain, and every last one of them died for it. Or did they actually see the risen Lord Jesus, and that changed everything for them? That's the question uh, that Matthew himself urges us to think about. Uh, for, for many people, it is simply this, this a priori, uh, this preconceived conviction that people just don't rise from the dead, or miracles just don't happen, or Jesus just wasn't who he claimed to be. We can't accept that. That leads them to this sort of conclusion that this event must not have happened. Uh, but then uh, one has to ask himself, are you truly open to that possibility? Are you truly looking at the evidence reasonably with an open mind? Are you willing to consider that Jesus might actually have risen from the dead? Uh, now, uh, as we saw, there, there are others who, who argue that uh, because they agree that it's implausible that the disciples made this story up, uh, that they argue instead perhaps the disciples hallucinated. Uh, maybe in, in their despair, in, in the shattering of all the hopes they had for the last three years uh, of being with Jesus, uh, that they were so deep in despair that they all just hallucinated and they thought they saw Jesus, but really they didn't. Well, this theory uh, runs into even more problems. Uh, for one thing, you still have the empty tomb. If all the disciples did was hallucinate, you all the Jews could have done was, was take them to the tomb. Uh, that, the whole thing would have been immediately dispelled. Uh, don't forget, the disciples were proclaiming that Jesus had risen within days after he was publicly, officially uh, executed. Uh, this thing was fresh on everybody's mind. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to disprove, but there was no body. Now, there is, a, of course, an additional problem with this hallucination theory uh, that, that all 11 of the disciples, plus the women, plus the others, are apparently all sharing in this, this hallucination. Uh, that is just not plausible. It doesn't make sense. Now, some say, as, as Luke records, uh, some say, well, maybe they saw a ghost, or, or maybe there's some other spiritual force uh, going on leading them to believe that Jesus had risen, but he didn't really. Well, this is precisely the point that Luke refutes, uh, that the disciples themselves thought that, but then they saw him eat. They touched him with their hands. They had breakfast with him on the beach. And then they saw him rise into heaven uh, some days later. Uh, this is not what a ghost would do. And of course, there remains the question, where's the body? Uh, so we're left with this dilemma. Either they're lying 
or they hallucinated, or they actually saw the risen Lord Jesus, and it turned their world upside down as much as it would turn any of ours. Uh, I want to deal with just one more uh, theory very briefly. This is the, uh, the theory that's, that's taught by the Koran and held by Muslims today, and that is that Jesus actually didn't die, he just passed out. Uh, he was just in a coma. Uh, th- this is probably the, the most absurd theory. Uh, first of all, there's simply no way, not after being crucified, even less after the, the scourging that Jesus rece- received, which itself often killed the victim before they even got to the cross. Uh, secondly, the Roman guards were not stupid. Uh, they know the difference between a dead man and, and a man who's passed out. Uh, that was their job, to make sure that the person was truly dead. They never would have taken someone down from the cross early, even as they took Jesus early from the cross, uh, without having made sure that he was really, truly dead. Uh, That's why John's Gospel records how they pierced Jesus' side with a spear and outflowed blood and water. Uh, They knew he was dead. Uh, then there's, there's also the stone that was rolled over the entrance to the tomb. Uh, it was such a large stone that several people were needed to roll it. Uh, so how is one man, a man who had just been crucified, who just woke up from a coma, uh, supposed to be able to re- remove that stone? There's not a chance uh, that a man could do it. Then, of course, there's the soldiers posted outside. How does Jesus get around them? Uh, and and there, there are actually a, a, a number of other problems with this explanation. Things like, where did Jesus go then? Uh, why did the disciples say that he arose and, and testify to, to all these encounters with him if actually he just didn't, didn't die? Why didn't Jesus show himself to the authorities? Uh, th- this is why this, this, uh, this theory is, is dismissed by anyone outside of, of the Islamic tradition. It just doesn't work. Uh, So all told, uh, the reality is the resurrection is one of the best attested facts of ancient history. Uh, The evidence for it is overwhelming if you can accept that it's possible that someone actually rose from the dead. And that's what it ultimately comes down to, whether we are willing to believe the testimony, the reliable testimony of the many witnesses. Uh, whether you are willing to consider that Christ might actually have been who he said he was, Uh, whether someone is truly open to the possibility that a resurrection occurred, that's what makes the difference. Uh, Because if someone's not open to such a possibility, there will always be another argument. There will always be an alternate theory, uh, another implausible explanation that we must accept to deal with the the evidence. This is why it's important for us, as Matthew so often does, to not just look at the evidence, but also at the scriptural testimony that also concludes that Christ is who he said he was. Uh, Christ said he would be rejected and killed by his people, and on the third day would rise again. The disciples didn't believe that. Uh, when, when he first told it to them, but they should have, because Scripture teaches it. Uh, Psalm 118, uh, which was widely regarded by the Jews as a messianic psalm, uh, says uh, that the stone the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. 
This was known that this was supposed to happen to the Messiah, though the disciples nonetheless stumbled over it. Uh, Isaiah 53 uh, spoke uh, long, 500 years before the the suffering and death of Christ, uh, and spoke in such vivid, specific detail that many people today uh, refer to Isaiah 53 as the fifth gospel. Uh, there, there are many Jews who are actually confronted with that text and reject it, um, not knowing that it's part of their Bible, assuming it to be a Christian uh, writing. Uh, Isaiah 53 then speaks in, in vivid detail. Uh, on top of that, the whole of the temple system points forward, cries out, saying, there will be a sacrifice for sin And it's not going to be, at the end of the day, the blood of sheep and goats. Uh, Notably as well, in connection with that, when Christ came, he declared himself to be the fulfillment of that temple system, the fulfillment of the temple itself. And and he said that as a result, the old temple, the the physical temple made of gold and and stone, would be destroyed. Uh, That the entire city of Jerusalem, in addition to that, would would be brought to ruin for rejecting their Messiah. Uh, And and so he, uh, just just as, as the Jews themselves declared at his death, his blood be upon our heads and the heads of our children, uh, that, that is an implausible prophecy for Jesus to have made, that, that the temple would be destroyed, that the city would be brought to ruin. And he says, it will happen within that generation, because I am the fulfillment of all that it points to. So when I am gone, uh, or, or since I have come, uh, the temple will no longer stand. Uh, and that's exactly what happened within that same generation. Uh, if you just think about it, an entire religion came to an end within a generation of someone claiming to be the fulfillment of that religion and saying it would come to an end. Uh, as we've seen before when we looked at Jesus as high priest a few weeks ago, uh, the, the Judaism of today, the rabbinical uh, Judaism, is a radically different religion than the Judaism of the Old Testament, which always was all about the sacrifices and, and the temple. Uh, so again, brothers and sisters, what makes more sense? In addition to this, Jesus declared uh, to his disciples that his church, then as small as a mustard seed, would grow to be the largest of the trees of the garden, that all the birds of the the air would nest in its branches, uh, referring to all the nations of the world. And that, too, has been magnificently fulfilled. Uh, Such an implausible thing for Jesus to tell his disciples, uh, this small group, so small like a mustard seed, will one day be greater than all the religions of the world. Uh, And and yet that has been fulfilled, not only in the hundreds of years after Christ's uh, ascension, but with the uh, and and the explosion of the church, but over the last 2,000 years, how his church has been growing. Now, here's the implication, brothers and sisters. Uh, Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Christ, the fulfillment in every way of all of the promises of Scripture, who lived a righteous life for our sake, who was crucified for our sins, and who rose on the third day by the power of God for our salvation. 
And he calls you, brothers and sisters, and all of us to repent of our hard-heartedness, to confess our sins and our rebellion against our God, and to find our hope and our rest in his perfect atonement that was brought to completion at, the, at his resurrection from the dead. Uh, so let's spend uh, just a last minute here reflecting then, given the truth of this fact, reflecting upon the implications of it. What does this great news mean for us? Well, number one, in the first place, it means, uh, as we've already seen, that he, it means he is who he said he was. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior, the one that God said would come. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, again, his own life being another amazing testimony to the truth of the resurrection, given what he had to lose. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1, uh, verse 1 through 4, he, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to me an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, descended from David according to the flesh, and, listen to this, declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is God's declaration to the world that this is my Son. That this is the Messiah I said would come. Uh, Likewise, Peter says in Acts 2, uh, preaching on on that psalm we just sang, Psalm 16, Peter says, uh, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Uh, Again, he says a few verses later, Let all the house of Israel know for certain, therefore, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection is God's declaration, this is the Christ. This is my son. This is the Savior I said would come. Uh, The resurrection was so central then to the apostles because it was the irrefutable evidence that they'd seen with their own eyes, touched with their own hands, uh, that Jesus truly was the Christ. In the second place, the resurrection matters. It's such glorious news because it is the proof that, uh, that Christ's death truly is the full satisfaction for our sins. And if Jesus had remained in the grave, we might have cause to wonder, were our sins truly paid for? Was that debt fully accounted for? Uh, But the resurrection is God's public declaration that the death of Christ is enough, is sufficient, so sufficient that he raised Christ from the dead to be able to declare to us, the curse is gone, the punishment is over, your sins are paid for. Uh, Had he not risen, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we would still be in our sins. Uh, But because we belong to him, and he has gone to death for our sake and come out the other side, so we too are carried with him out the other side into resurrection life. We have nothing to fear from death. We have no reason to fear the judgment of God because Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, In the last place, Christ's resurrection then carries us into new life, even here on earth. Uh, Because we are united to him and his death is our death to sin, uh, so his resurrection is our coming into new life 
already here on earth. Uh, Already now, brothers and sisters, uh, we who belong to Christ are bound up together with Him in His resurrection. Uh, Just as we've died to sin, now we live before God. And we do that by the power of His Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8 uh, that the same Spirit, the same power that rose Christ from the dead also dwells within you and will give life to your mortal bodies. Uh, You can live new, transformed lives by the power of His Spirit. The same power that was so, so great as to raise Christ from the dead. That power lives in you to bring you into new, righteous, holy life. Uh, So the resurrection of Christ, brothers and sisters, truly does change everything. Uh, Because we believe the reliable testimony of the multiple witnesses, and because that testimony is trustworthy, uh, so then the confidence that we have that Christ rose from the dead is a sure and steadfast confidence. And that confidence is as life-changing to us and ought to always be as life-changing to us as it was to the disciples uh, who saw it first. Uh, Because He has risen, we too rejoice uh, in the inheritance that is in store for us. Uh, Because He has risen, we commit our earthly lives to this, our Savior. Uh, Because He has risen, we no longer consider our earthly lives as worthy of holding on to, as worthy of keeping, but rather we stand boldly in the hope of the resurrection that is still in store for us. As our Lord Jesus said, He who loses His life for my sake uh, will keep it. His resurrection gives us, as Peter says, a living hope to an inheritance that is undefiled and, uh, and, and forever lasting. Uh, because Jesus is risen, we may say with confidence, He is no fool who gives what He cannot keep to gain what He cannot lose. Amen. Let's respond uh, to God's word by singing together from hymn 32.